According to her friends, few people have done more for conservation in Central Oregon than Alice Elshoff. I'm Brian Jennings for The Source Weekly. Alice Elshoff has been a conservation fixture in Central Oregon since 1960. She co-founded groups like the Friends of the Malheur Refuge, which was taken over by armed occupiers led by the sons of controversial Nevada rancher Cliven Bundy. She led an effort to protest the occupation, which helped turn the tide of press attention from the occupiers to the value of public lands and the Malheur Refuge. Many other protests were organized following her efforts. She co-founded ONDA, the Oregon Natural Desert Association, and helped form a Central Oregon chapter of the great old broads for wilderness, calling themselves the Bitterbrush Broads. Alice Elshoff is the Source Weekly's Woman of the Year. We spoke with Alice recently. This is SourceCast. The years that I was in college in Colorado, those summers, I worked at a very uh, rough at camp high in the Rockies. So I learned then and there, you know, the beauty of the outdoors and the mountains and the streams. And then uh, when I came to uh, Oregon to teach after college, um, I met my husband, and uh, we moved here to Bend in 1960. And he actually took me to Malheur first because he had been there um, on field trips from uh, Oregon State. He was in uh, fish and game management at that. That's what they called it at that time. And so he had fallen in love with the place, and of course I immediately did too. <laughs> so you have seen Malheur and the Refuge basically since 1960. What is it like when you look back to 1960 to now? Well, um, the Refuge has gone through a lot of changes. Uh, we've seen uh, we've seen the road, roads flooded at least twice. We've seen the lake uh, so full that it came over the highway and uh, carp were swimming back and forth across the asphalt. Uh, and we've seen the lake dry uh, at least two times. Uh, so uh, it changes. It's a basin. The water has no place to go except to evaporate. And so uh, it's changing all the time. Uh, it's been through a lot of different uh, managers uh, in the time that we have known it. But the birds keep coming. No matter what, what changes go on, the birds keep coming. They keep migrating from South America to the Arctic to Siberia, um, stitching the continents together, and that goes on always. Yeah, there is a constant there, and that's nice to see, isn't it? Yes, yes. <laughs> Where did you teach? Uh, here in Bend? I taught a little bit here in Bend. Um, uh, the most fun I had taught several years before coming to Bend, and uh, the most fun I ever had here was teaching at a two-room school um, in Alfalfa before they sent the kids into Redmond. And I had the first four grades, and there was a man that had five, six, seven, and eight, and um, I had that was just a lot of fun. <laughs> it was uh, the best teaching I ever did. <laughs> uh, the uh, two-room schoolhouse, yes. huh? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and there, uh, there used to be quite a few of those around. Some of your role models in life. You, you grew up in Colorado. I didn't um, grow up there. I grew up actually all over the desert, uh, always living in rural places at the end of a, a little two-lane dirt road. My dad was in mining, so <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time out, out in desert areas. Um, I guess my role models, uh, the first one that would come to, <clears throat> to mind would be <clears throat> Marty Murray. She uh, <clears throat> was a young girl in the early 1900s in Alaska. She married Olaf Murray, and they, um, well, on their honeymoon, uh, they went on a on a dog sled trip across the Arctic, <laughs> and then they were both so instrumental in getting protection up in the Arctic. They worked on the first um, 
uh, National Wildlife Refuge there. They were very instrumental, the two of them, in um, getting the 1964 Wilderness Act passed. And then after Olaf died, she carried on that work and uh, was responsible for, I think, 100 million acres of um, Arctic wilderness in the, yeah, I think in the, probably in the 60s. Anyway, she's, uh, she's just a marvelous woman. Uh, she's known in the environmental community as the grandmother of wilderness. <laughs> I mm. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> granny of wilderness. Yeah. <laughs> a good old granny of wilderness. <clears throat> Obviously, Rachel Carson was a role model. Uh, what she went through, you know, uh, belittled by um, the press and everybody, the big, the big uh, corporations for her work, which, of course, turned out to be absolutely true, the things that she that yeah. she did for science. She was a marvelous, marvelous woman scientist. Um, and not all of my role models were women. Um, I think of uh, Paul Krugel. He was just a young man down in Florida, and there was an island off the coast of Florida, uh, Pelican Island, mm-hmm. and people, guys, were going out there, um, guys, yeah, were going out there shooting the pelicans and the other um, long-legged birds, the wading birds, and he started uh, protecting them mm-hmm. with the shotgun. And so some of the the birding people there uh, cobbled together some money, apparently, to sort of pay him and call him a warden. And uh, he protected that island with his shotgun. Two of the other wardens actually were murdered. Mm. So it took some some guts to do that. And then um, because of that work, uh, it became our first national wildlife refuge, Pelican Island, off the coast of Florida. And he was named the very first National Wildlife Refuge Manager. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. yeah. So, great guy. <laughs> so, going back over your past, Alice, there has there's a connection to land. You lived in desert areas. Uh, you must have had a basic appreciation for land before you even became involved with the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. Oh, right, right. Um, uh, in my college days in Colorado, I worked at a very rough at camp up high in the Rockies. And, um, yeah, when you spend um, nights lying under the stars and, and days just roaming around, uh, seeing life going on the way it's supposed to, uh, you just can't help but get an appreciation for that. Mm-hmm. that. That wildness that is so important that we don't interfere with. So do you recall when your husband took you out to the refuge for the first time? Oh, my goodness, that's lost in integrity, <laughs> antiquity, let me think. Um, we've been there so many times since, I don't know that I can actually recall the first time. Um, I can tell you the first time that we passed a little puddle and I saw um, a bird going round and round and round in circles on the water and thinking, what in the world is that bird doing? And now every time I pass that puddle, I remember that, <laughs> seeing that bird and then wanting to go and identify it. <laughs> Why is the Malheur uh, National Wildlife Refuge so special. Well, in the in the in the big view, it's so important as a stopover on the Western Flyway. These birds that migrate back and forth um, from South America to Siberia, stitching the continents together. You know, that's they need these places as stopovers. They need to rest and refuel, and Malheur is is perfectly situated to do that, and that's why it is so important. Um, on a more local scale, um, there's just something about driving across the desert from any direction, miles and miles across the desert, and then all of a sudden, here is this jewel. <laughs> this jewel, um, the, the river um, with its fish, um, the, the 
willows along the edge of it where the songbirds are singing their buns off, um, the wet meadows where the, where the uh, cranes are feeding and raising their young, um, shallow water where the, um, where the um, long-billed dowagers are pecking away at the mud, and then the deep lake, uh, well, not really a deep lake, but deep enough to be called a lake, um, where the pelicans live and all. There's, there's, just, there's just something about it. There's, there's just everything there. Mm-hmm. And then I was lucky enough to live over there for almost a dozen years. And so to see the incredible sunsets that happen over it and the full moon rises, you know, and the dark sky at night. Oh, my goodness. That's, yeah, yeah that's pretty special. We're losing that way too fast, the dark yeah, we sky. We could actually see stars. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. And um, um, otters in the river, you know, it's just, mm-hmm. there's just so much there. When the armed occupation began in January, what was your reaction you know, my, my first reaction was, this is so ludicrous that we, we will be able to just laugh them off the face of the earth. You know, we couldn't believe it was actually going to be something serious. Um, and then, of course, as time went on and we realized just how serious it was, I began to feel personally violated um, to see people over there damaging a place that you care so much about um, was, was just like a personal violation. And then I cannot even imagine how that must have felt to the people from the, um, from the Paiute um, nation, seeing their uh, sacred places violated. That must have just been so difficult for them. Well, I really appreciated the comment by the uh, Paiute uh, chairwoman. Yes. Who said uh, she didn't feel the Bundys had the uh, Native Americans in mind when they were talking about returning the land. Yes, she was wonderful. Charlotte, she's wonderful. <laughs> I thought that was uh, very appropriate. <laughs> very appropriate. <laughs> very appropriate. Yes, I saw in one of the pictures they were burning a post that had the sign on it for our auto tour route. And I wrote that original auto tour uh, route, and uh, that was really hard to watch. <laughs> Do you think the county and the community is now beginning to recover and have their own sense of direction and identity back again? I think it's beginning. They did have a, a, a huge big dinner attended by, I think, probably 500 people uh, from the city um, uh, supporting the, uh, the work that the law enforcement people had done and all. And that was a great a great coming together, but it's going to be a long time till things are really back to normal again. I think people are still feeling, feeling, put upon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, somewhat violated. Violated, yeah. right, right, right. I met with Steve Grasty, mm-hmm. uh, the chief judge there, and and he said that, you know, there's a lesson to be learned here. We have to find a way of communicating and listening to each other, or. This will happen again somewhere mm-hmm. else. It doesn't have to be Malheur. It'll happen somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this the lesson, perhaps, that we need to, to look deeper into, uh, into their complaints and, and figure out a way in which everybody could be heard? Yeah, certainly that's important. And what seemed so odd about this was the, the place that they picked to do this because Malheur Refuge had worked hard on that very thing, bringing people together. And so it seemed um, it made no sense. This is an example where ranchers did come together and, and conservationists came together and they formed the Malheur Refuge. 
And, and so it was a collaborative effort. Well, and they worked on the new management plan, the new 10-year management plan. Um, these people sat, uh, you know, hour after hour and after hour in meetings together, pulling that plan together. So, yeah, it was a strange place for these people to think they could accomplish whatever it was they were trying to accomplish. <laughs> well, they didn't accomplish. They now, did not. Uh, <clears throat> in fact, the opposite seems to have happened, that there is a new heightened interest and awareness of public lands, and uh, Friends of Malheur mm-hmm. has gotten a big boost from this, actually. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, our little group, I think we have in our coffers now since January, $70,000 <laughs> um, that we can use on... Um, on projects around the refuge. And in fact, our first project is coming up. The first time that we're going to be allowed back in is May 7th, coming up right away, and we're going to um, plant a pollinator garden down by the observation pond. You know, our monarchs are in trouble, our bees are in trouble, and so this is one thing that we can do um, that everybody can feel good about. And so things are turning around. Things are slowly turning around. It'll still be a long time until um, we can actually use the refuge again, but... Yeah, yeah. We uh, filmed, uh, of course, uh, uh, your uh, Grannies Against Bullies rally here in Bend, and uh, you had many speakers there, but how did that come together? You know, I'm trying to think back. I think it started one night when I was just incensed about all of this, and I couldn't sleep. And I got up, and I went downstairs, and I fired up the the computer, and I fired off an email to um, Rinda from Great Old Broads. Well, that was all I needed to do. You give Rinda something to do, and it gets done. <laughs> and within days, I had run the, the idea past Bill Marlette, too, who's also really good at organizing things and has good ideas. And uh, he seemed to think it was a good idea, and so the Great Old Broads just ran with it. I couldn't believe how quickly we were able to bring that all together. Yeah. And a lot of that credit goes to Rinda. <laughs> and you are a member of the Great Old Broads yes. as oh, well. Oh, yes. I've been a member for a long, long time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, at the rally, you had your rolling pin. How did that, uh, how did that enter your mind as, as, as a prop? Um, I guess it was something we could point at them like they were pointing their guns. I don't know. <laughs> um, we thought about, we had fly swatters also in our pockets of our aprons. And so uh, we figured between fly swatters and, and rolling pins, we could certainly run those boys back to their mamas. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did. <laughs> it took a while. <laughs> I think there were other things involved besides our work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the story I heard was you had less than a week to bring that rally together. That's right. That's right. And like I say, uh, Linda is a great organizer. Rinda is a great organizer. Yeah. And so uh, we just got a bunch of, of mothers and grandmothers together and said, you know, we just have to do something about this. And well, <laughs> interestingly, the videos that we uh, that we shot on site uh, were seen by literally thousands of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was looking at our video count last night, and it's well over five or six thousand people who have seen that video. Well, and I hope those people that watch that will get out and protect public lands, do whatever they can, because that's the big job from now on. You've had a an outpouring of. Um, of people wanting to do volunteer work now as well. <laughs> oh, yes, we have. <laughs> uh, it's going to be difficult, actually, to find enough things for them to do, I think. People from all over the country joined all the groups that, that put out um, information about the, about the seizure. Um, 
they all got boosts in their membership, uh, Portland Audubon, Onda, all of those things, and uh, our membership was certainly boosted, and our uh, our coffers were certainly <laughs> boosted. So um, when, uh, this ne- this coming up meeting, or uh, um, the work party that's coming up soon uh, on May 7th, I talked to Carrie at the refuge, and I said, how many people have signed up for that? And um, she said, well, I think 30. And I said, you know, we should probably cut it off. <laughs> um, and the last I heard, there were 50 people coming. Oh, so we've ordered about $500 worth of plants that we're going to plant. And, um, yeah, we'll have a good time doing that. People will really feel good about that. Well, tell me, how did the f- idea for Friends of the Malheur germinate? Where did that begin? Um, let's see. Gary Ivey was the uh, biologist there at that time. And Forrest Cameron was the was the um, refuge manager, and um, I think Forrest actually had heard about other friends groups, and and he wanted us to have one too, and so Gary and my husband and I kind of sat down together and um, decided we would see what we could do about it. And we called a bunch of people together, and everybody thought it was a good idea, and so we just started doing it. And when was that? It would have been in um, I'm early two thousand. Mm-hmm. Okay, so about mm-hmm. a 15-year history now. Right, yeah. right, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And some of our projects, oh, wow, one of our first big projects <clears throat> was to work with the county and the state highway department and the um, the uh, Harney County commissioners and the Waterfowl Festival people all put in, and the refuge, We all they all put in money, and we got together... Um, uh, a plan to make a parking area, a safe parking area at the Narrows. It had always been a big birding place, and there was no safe place, safe place to um, to pull off. So um, that was our that took a lot of effort to do, but a lot of people got together, cooperated on it, and it happened. And um, we built some trails on the refuge. Um, we helped put up a sign up on uh, the highway, uh, advertising the refuge. Um, We've done a lot of weed pulling, a lot of fence removal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, total work. Mm-hmm. Total work. <laughs> yeah. Why are public lands so important in your estimation? Public land, our public lands truly are our national heritage. They're the places that are protecting wildness, and wildness is what we have to be sure that we protect. I mean, we are not in charge. <laughs> Um, it's wildness that is uh, the link between the past and the future. Just something so simple as, as our planting a garden. You know, we can plant a seed, and we can water it, and we can weed around it. We don't make it grow. It grows of its own self-will. That's wildness. Um, you know, our bodies, uh, surgeons, uh, bless their hearts for their talents. They make incisions and take out bad things. But the body heals itself. That's wildness, and it's that wildness, the link between the past and the future that we just have to maintain. Mm-hmm. And our public lands are the places where we can do that. <laughs> so that's, that's the work ahead of us, to make everyone in the country aware of how important our public lands are to us. And our country is, is the envy of other countries in the world that don't have public lands. It's something we really must cherish. Speaking of the past to the future, this year's Bird Fest seems to uh, be a, a benchmark uh, of popularity yes. for the return of uh, public lands to everybody. 
uh, and the success they had. Yeah, I think a lot of people were so concerned that, they, that it might not happen this year. And they were so relieved to find that it did. And I think all of the tours um, that were advertised, I think, were, were filled almost immediately. Yeah, it was a good thing. Yeah. Do you work with that group as well? Yes, I did. Well, our, uh, our friends group had a presence there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Awesome. Yeah, and it was wonderful. People, everyone were, all the people were so concerned, not just about the refuge, but I think they came to support the people of um, Burns, who were so traumatized by this, having been followed around town by these people and with guns and big pickups. And uh, yeah, they were they were traumatized, and so everybody wanted to support them too, and the tribal people. They wanted to support the tribe. Mm-hmm. 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 Alice, this is an important message uh, for, for all people, public lands and the value they are to the world. And as you said, they are the envy of the world. What would you tell young people today to be thinking about for the future? Uh, are you concerned that young people don't have the same value for public lands as perhaps our generation did? Where do you see that going? Um, I think it's possible that a lot, a lot of young people are missing out on the chances um, to know our public lands and to get out on the land. Um, but there's, there are also some, some really valuable movements happening. Are you familiar with You Can Youth Climate Action Now? It's a group of young people um, that are using um, Professor Mary Wood uh, from Eugene, who has written the book uh, Our Nature's Trust. Um, they're using that concept that our, our public lands are, um, are the uh, are, are, the, are our public trust, and the government needs to be protecting them. There's also another wonderful movement going on, and that is um, um, people wanting to um, get um, outdoor school for all, all children in Oregon, uh, going to the state and making it possible for every child in Oregon to have outdoor school. And I can tell you, as a retired teacher, there is nothing more fun than taking kids out onto the land. Um, I've taken fourth graders out into the Badlands for a number of years, and um, it's just such a joyous thing um, to get kids. I've told this story often, but to get kids down on their uh, stomachs with a a magnifying glass looking at old, dried-up, dead moss that occurs actually in the desert, believe it or not, and then pouring a little water on it and watching it turn green immediately, come to life and start photosynthesizing. I mean, and they're just squealing, oh, look, mine's doing it, mine's doing it. And that's just so exciting to see kids get excited about that sort of thing, seeing, seeing life happen mm-hmm. like that. I have to tell you, though, that the first time I ever did it, um, I did it at lunchtime because we were all together. We had hiked into the Badlands, and we were all together. And so I thought, oh, this is a good time to do this. Well, of course, then they spent the whole afternoon emptying all their water bottles on the moss, and we still had to hike back to the bus <laughs> on a hot afternoon. So you learn these things. <laughs> a little life lesson, huh? A little life lesson for a teacher that should have known better. <laughs> but, yeah, I think I'm encouraged, actually, by uh, things that young people are doing. I'm, I'm fairly hopeful. What legacy do you hope to hand down to, to other people? I think legacy is too strong of a word to think of anything that I could accomplish. But um, if anything that I have done has helped young people get connected with wildlands, I will go to the great beyond a happy woman. <laughs> 
you seem a very happy woman anyway. You know, I think I was born happy. <laughs> <laughs> I was fortunate. I, I, I am happy because I was fortunate to have grown up in rural places and to have had, um, you know, parents who were busy making a living. I mean, it was Depression days, and, you know, so we were just free to run wild and... Um, that's a wonderful thing for kids to do, to run wild. And I, I feel sorry for kids now that don't do that. <laughs> we had sticks and stones and yes. not iPads. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You were obviously um, a very humble woman. And uh, this, is, this is an honor that uh, is a surprise to you. It is a surprise, and it is an honor. And um, I guess... I guess the one thing that I would take credit for, one thing that I apparently, looking back, seemed to have been pretty good at doing was um, getting something started and then finding good people to take it over and really run with it. <laughs> Thinking back to um, the early days of Onda, it was uh, a man named Don Tryon and I who called the first meeting to see if anybody wanted to form a little desert group. And I think about a dozen people attended, and... Uh, we sort of struggled along for a while until we found Bill Marlett, and then it became Anda. And look where Anda is now with their incredible staff and the wonderful work that they are doing. So you were really one of the founding... Uh... I was one of the founding members of Anda, yeah, yeah. Well, what is next for Alice Elshoff? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, you know, we're getting older, and so I'm, gonna, I'm pulling back from a few things and spending more time at home with my husband, who's 88 now, um, but uh, so the big push, I think now uh, I'll be devoting most of my time to the um, to the refuge group, to the friends of the refuge group. Mm -hmm. So a lot yeah. more activity there for There's you. There's a lot more to do there, and so I'm going to think I think I'll concentrate on that now. Well, wonderful. Yeah. Well, Alice, thank you, and congratulations, and uh, Godspeed. Thank you very much, Alice Elshoff, the Source Weekly's Woman of the Year. I'm Brian Jennings for The Source Weekly, and you've been listening to SourceCast, also online at bendsource.com.